Captain, there's an old saying that a great player like yourself is only as great as the opposition he played against. And you are a great player. And I got thinking about the players you played against. Wilt, Baylor, West, Magic, Dr. J. They go on and on. Now, here it is. I want one answer only. Who was the guy that brought chills up and down your spine when he came onto the floor? The greatest player you ever saw. Well, if I was limited to just one. Mm -hmm. Jeez. That would have to be the goal. This is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar following his retirement game in the 1994 film Rebound. Today, we will explore the best player to never play in the NBA. A man with phenomenal skills who has been largely forgotten. That man is Earl Manigault. Manigault was without a doubt something truly different on both the hardwood and the blacktop. The gravity-defying feats of a man living in a world of giants that is basketball will leave all jaws on the floor no matter where he stepped with a ball in his hand. Growing up in Harlem, Manigault played some of the best basketball talents in the world. Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, just to name a few. Manigault supposedly had a 60-inch vertical jump. 60. Like 6-0 in the 1960s. That's the highest vertical even in the league still today. And that's only 58. And that's with all of today's advanced training and everything. Manigault possessed an almost supernatural ability to just ball. His name even still carries massive respect to this day. Kareem has called Manigault the best basketball player in the city of New York even. So now we must ask ourselves, how does a man with such high praise fall so far below expectations? How does a man that has it all somehow end up with nothing? Was he a man of myth or massive misfortune? This is the story of the GOAT, Earl Manigault. What's your name, man? Hey, the grand, the grand. Earl. Say what? Me, Earl Manigo. He say nanny go. Imagine you're in Harlem. More specifically, 280 West 155th Street. Rutgers Park, the mecca of basketball. The heat rages here. A heat so hot the temperature was visible in the air. That's a Harlem 1962 summer for you. The only thing that raged louder than the heat were the chants and cheers coming from the worn bleachers. These bleachers filled quick, and soon kids were climbing and vying for nearby roofs and gates to sit upon, while the old heads sat front and center for the spectacles in front of them. No one person or spectacle catching more eyes than Manigault, though. The goat leaped through the air like he's floating. No, not floating. More like flying. Scoring shot after shot, long range shots and dunks. More dunks. Did you just see him double dunk? Dunk with his right hand, catch it with his left, and dunk again? In the same jump? How is that even possible? The energy, the pressure, it's enough to make diamonds. And Earl Manigault was a diamond on that Harlem ball court. That's who Earl Manigault was. A true diamond with a few blemishes. Like all of us. You see, Earl Manigault was quite literally the original GOAT. 
Early in school, a teacher had mistakenly pronounced his name Manny Goat instead of Mana Goat. And with his play on the court, the name kind of just stuck. Greatest of all time. However, before overcoming the pressures on the court, Manigault first had to overcome them off. Born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1945, Manigault was born to a family with eight other siblings. Around the age of seven, it became prominent that Manigault's parents cared very little in the interest of raising their children. He eventually was taken in by a woman by the name of Mary Manigault, who his name eventually was derived from, who moved the two to Harlem. Manigault now had a loving figure in his life that was absent throughout his early formative years. However, the move did not remove the financial or environmental factors plaguing the Manigolds. Even with these struggles, there was one place these struggles could never reach Manigault, and that was on the court. Shoot, on the court? There's nobody that could reach him. Using basketball to combat his life struggles, Manigault started playing ball in about the fifth grade and spent countless hours on them Harlem blacktops honing his craft. Whether his jumping ability was a result of his habit of training with equal weights or a pure gift of God, we'll probably never know. But what we do know is, Manigault could jump. And man, that guy could jump high. The NBA's, come on, man, they ain't gonna take me. That's a white boy league. You know they only take two brothers to a team, if that. And you could be one of them! A man above the rest is not a quote that does Manigault enough justice when describing him on the court. Not only did he get above the competition on the court, but in the minds of the community as well. Which is not something easy to do in such a fickle community as basketball where the fan is always looking for the new best. Also, let's not forget, we're in the heart of Harlem, the epicenter for a lot of ballers. This is Harlem, not North Dakota. Staying on these courts takes a lot. Through his teenage years, Manigault built a name for himself through the neighborhoods of Harlem with his domination of others on the court. It was no rare thing for Manigault to commonly rise up out of his 6'1 frame to block shots and dunk on players that are more than half a foot taller than him. The guy possessed an ability to leap that would even make a flea jealous. Manigault's supposed 60-inch vertical literally turned him into a mobile circus. Whichever park he balled at, you were sure to see some sort of jaw-dropping feet. Perhaps the most absurd of them all is Manigault's tallest tell, the double dunk. That's cap. Taylor knew that. That's cap. <laughs> I, I accuse I you of capping. <laughs> The double dunk was a move where Manigault would rise up off the asphalt, proceed to dunk the ball, catch the ball as it made its way through the basket, and proceed to dunk it again, all without holding the rim. Could such a dunk exist? Like no, seriously. After this, look at Gerald Green's attempt at a double dunk while trying to grab the rim, and look at how he was still barely able to make an attempt. Is it possible for a man to do such gravity-defying things? Could Manigault actually double dunk the ball? Could he actually do 720 dunks from the free throw line like they say? Could he actually dunk on a whole team with ease? We would be here all day if we asked ourselves about the validity of all of his feats. It is only important to know the reason why our list of questions are so long. 
Manigault didn't have the luxury of playing in an era where the smartphone and its cameras are as easy to get, nor did he have the privilege of playing during a time when photographers cared enough to explore these concrete jungles that are Harlem basketball courts. Manigault has confirmed some of these tales and others he has denied, but the people consistently promote that they saw these unfathomable acts of athleticism. Whether hyperbably or not, there is still no doubt that the spectators of Harlem's courts consistently saw something great out on that court, time and time again. Nothing in 70s Harlem basketball though screamed Manigault more than his most common and iconic story, performing a movie dubbed Making Change. Now, let's take another little trip back to that basketball court, Rucker Park. Imagine it's a summer day, the air is dry, but the courts are lively. Manigold just asked some kid to put a stack of coins upon the top of the backboard. How do you expect me to do that? The kid asks. Manigold chuckles and replies with a joking jump. Eventually, the kid understood that he would have to climb to reach the heights that seemed so accessible to Manigold. What could be going on though? The kid climbs, places the coin, gets down, and he's scrambling back to his friends gathered around the Italian ice cart. Manigold is over there with the other ballers seemingly taking bets. A look of doubt on everyone's faces. Set Manigold's, of course. Pure confidence. You could tell these weren't the first non-believers. Still, you think, though. The top of the backboard? Yeah, right. No way. But wait. Manigold plants his feet one second. And one second later, he was at eye level with the rim. But he didn't stop kept rising and rising and rising until he fell back to the asphalt. Once on the ground, Manigault held out his hand with a closed fist and a second later, the sound of a lot of favorites, you know, I, I still have a lot of friends out here, you know. Because of this great talent he possessed, Manigault had gained the attention of not only on-looking children and fellow ballers but the far more shady eyes of Harlem as well. Being that talented in something as lucrative as basketball in a neighborhood such as Harlem, it was almost inevitable for Manigault to make a few bad friends along the way. With drug abuse being as commonplace as it was in the mid-1900s, it's honestly a surprise the courts were able to protect Manigault from the harsh realities of Harlem for as long as they did. By 17, Manigault was a master of his craft on the court but lacked the same grace and control off of it. Manigault was already smoking weed by high school, just like many of the other youth around this time with too much free time and even less guidance. It is destructive habits and circumstances like this that begin to hurt the otherwise very blessed and talented Manigault. High school was a sham in his eyes, completing only his first two years and instead fell back on completing two and a half years at an all-black school by the name of Laurenburg Institute in North Carolina. Moving back closer to his South Carolina roots seemed to better his life situation as he was able to court hundreds of college offers based on his talents on the court, which is definitely an upgrade from hustling coins through wagers in the park at Harlem. However, Manigault only lasted a semester at college as he struggled both academically and seemingly with the team's sports style of basketball that his coach promoted. Around the time of Manigault's return to Harlem, Holcomb Rucker, groundskeeper of Rucker Park, would pass on shortly after this. 
Rucker was undoubtedly a key figure in Earl's development and ability to stay off the streets. Without him, Mary Manigault alone wasn't enough. Deployment for the Vietnam War also furthered Manigault's isolation, as a lot of his friends seemingly escaped the horrors of Harlem, only to have to live the horrors of war. Once alone, the drugs that had been around Manigault all of his life, for the first time ever, actually seemed tempting. And tempted, he was. The access after the entrance was quite easy, especially in Manigault's case, as he had accumulated all types of connections by this point. Heroin was Manigault's lethal love, and the love only grew deeper and deeper. And as the love grew, so did the price. Manigault could no longer afford his expensive habit with his on-court antics alone, and he had to turn to robbery. A lot will say there is no good kind of robbery, but one thing that can be said is Manigault never robbed someone maliciously. He thought through which businesses he would hit. He was not a violent man, but his addiction drove him. You can charge it to his mind, not his soul. Manigault's doctor even noted what a different kind of addict he was. He was aware of his own addiction. He never tried to hide it and he never turned violent because of it. But a career in robbery did catch up to Manigault in 1979. He was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to prison. Upon his release, Manigault instantly wanted better for his life, and better is what he strived for. Taking a page out of his own book, Manigault used his leaping ability to make the jump from Harlem to North Carolina to be away from the social pressures and struggle of New York. Manigault had also brought his two sons with him to North Carolina hoping to get them away from the harsh life of Harlem as well. Manigault returned only a few years later, and empty-handed he was not. Upon his return, Manigault had brought back the GOAT tournament. The tournament was a program instilled at Rutgers Park that would also be known as the Walk Away From Drugs tournament. The tournament was for the youth of Harlem to encourage them to not make the same mistakes he made while also teaching them the game of basketball. It's important to note though, Manigault also never ran from his dark past either, and instead ran towards it. One of Manigault's early acts when returning to Harlem was he convinced one of the big drug suppliers in the city, presumably someone he used to buy from, to clean up the park and buy it back for the kids in order for the tournament to run. Rucker Park and the Gold Tournament was Manigault's amends to the city and its people. Amends that could be argued were never even necessary given that he had done nothing but amaze Harlem throughout his life. Manigault undoubtedly had more than enough talent to make it to the NBA, but also just enough mental blocks and life circumstances to stop him. As Manigault once said, For every Michael Jordan, there's an Earl Manigault. We all can't make it. Somebody has to fall. I was the one. So what does all this mean? Is Manigault's story to shame him? No. Is it to show that wasted talent is sad? It is, but no. Is it just to say drugs are bad kids? No. Well, yes, that should definitely be a message, but I think you see what I'm trying to do here. Manigault's story should only exemplify that the world is too big for one scope to be so small. In other words, there are heroes everywhere. You don't have to be an industry's top anything to be valued. You just have to have impact. 
The GOAT is beloved in Harlem, not because of his world-class basketball status, but because of the joy and knowledge of the game he gave them over the years. Yes, I could watch an NBA player with elite talent on TV, but why when I could go down the block and see greatness and learn from it? No plaque and Harlem still loves the GOAT. And anyone that is that revered, I think it's only fair that we at least try to remember the name.